0: Welcome to True Crime Garage, wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that knows that it takes a little more than a week to prepare a good impromptu speech. He is the captain.
1: Uh, I will speak at weddings and I'll speak at funerals. Just call my agent. It's good to be seen and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend.
0: Tonight, we are drinking Fat Tire Belgian White Ale by the new Belgian brewing company, Garage Grade, three and three quarter bottle caps out of five.
1: This is not the first time we've drank Fat Tire in the garage and it won't be the last.
0: 5.2% ABV and you can certainly taste the hints of oranges and coriander. It's a really good pick me up beer and I know some people turn up a nose to this, but it's a great beer to drop an orange slice into as well. And this week's beer was brought to us by a handful of great garage listeners. First up, we have Patrick in southeastern Massachusetts.
1: And a big shout out to Leanne in one of my favorite places to visit, Maui, Hawaii.
0: Next, we have a long distance cheers to Stacy in Castro Valley, California, And also in California, we have Kim in Salinas, California.
1: And from Tecumseh, Kansas, we have a big shout out to Nicole. We like your jam.
0: And I want to give a thank you to Isabella in Chelmer, Australia. And last but not least, a big shout out to Danielle in Dayton and her mother, Patty in canton ohio so thanks to everybody for filling up the fridge for this week's show if you want to help us out with next week's beer run go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button
1: and check out our t-shirts on the store page at truecrimegarage.com we're going to be working on new merchandise with you know some beer mugs some coffee mugs some stickers a bunch of stuff coming in 2018
0: and something very exciting, Captain. Most of you out there will know this already, but we have some special information. Mm. We have CrimeCon that is coming up the first weekend of May. Yes. And you can check out details at crimecon.com. And guess what? If you use our little code here, TC Garage, mm-hmm. you can save yourself ten percent on your tickets for this year's CrimeCon. Yes,
1: yeah, so sign up. Come hang out with us. We'll be drinking at the hotel bar. Hotel mo Tell Holiday.
0: And if you want to save some money, make sure you use code TCGarage at crimecon dot com to get your tickets for this year's CrimeCon 2018.
1: All right, that's enough of the business. Gather around, grab a chair, grab a fat tire. Let's talk some true crime.
0: In January of 1984, someone or some ones, they were going around to different homes and attacking people in their homes in the Aurora and Lakewood, Colorado areas. Now, one thing we have tasked ourselves with for today, Captain, is there are several common questions regarding these attacks. Mm -hmm. Now, we should lay it out here quickly before we get to the questions. But in the first attack, we have a husband and wife that are attacked in the middle of their night, in in the middle of the night in their bedroom. They both survived the attack. The second attack happens just days later, where we have a 50-year-old woman who's attacked inside of her townhome. She's raped and killed. The third attack, a woman is sexually assaulted and attacked in her garage. She basically has no memory.
1: Yeah, of, she's in a coma for weeks.
0: Yeah, of the attack or the attacker. And then the final attack that we can see, the fourth attack, is the Bennett family. In the middle of the night, somebody snuck into the Be- Bennett family home. They A fight ensued between the attacker and Bruce Bennett, the father and the attack left the father dead, the mother dead, the oldest child dead, and the youngest child was sent to the hospital who suffered horrible injuries. Mm-hmm. And through many it took many surgeries to try to um, try to put it so that she could try to have a, a normal life after this attack and having lost her family, she would eventually go to, on to live with her grandmother, Constance Bennett. Now, the questions that we've seen that are common to these attacks in this cold case from 1984, Colorado, is were the four attacks connected? And if there were no signs of forced entry, how did the intruder get into the homes of these people? How did the did the killer know the victims? Or if not, how did he choose these particular people or houses? What was the motive for these attacks and The killings, the attacks and the killings ended with the Bennett family. Why? Why did the the killer stop? Did the killer himself die? Or did he just stop killing? Or did he move to another state? So several things to get to here today. And I think if we can answer a lot of these questions, we might be able to have a better idea of who, in fact, perpetrated these attacks.
1: Let's start with the obvious question first. Were these attacks connected?
0: Well, that was a question that many people had speculated on for nearly 20 years. Uh, it was the thought of locals and the thought of a lot of armchair detectives that it's likely that all four of these attacks were connected. Mm. I mean, we have the simple fact of we can't find any sign of forced entry in any of these four attacks. Mm -hmm. It appears that the same weapon was used or the same type of weapon, a hammer or something similar was used in all four attacks. Correct. Uh, there it, where we have either a single female or a family being attacked, so the victimology is similar the 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 gaining entry to the home might be similar, and we also have the same weapon so it would look it would look that these attacks that all occurred, mind you, within the span of 13 days in roughly the same area and that I they that, must be connected.
1: yeah, and I think because the timeline is so short, you'd mm-hmm. have you, one would assume.
0: The problem that armchair detectives have had for those for those 20 years or nearly 20 years, I should say, is that the details of the cases. We don't have hardly any information regarding the Hobbins child case, mm-hmm. and that could be the first attack. We do get some more information regarding the second attack, the attack. That's the, the death and murder of Patricia Smith. And then there's a ton of evidence or a ton of information out there on the Bennett family murders. And that's the one that that's the cold case that kind of resonated with the community and with the people of Colorado. That's the one that they would remind you of the anniversary of it. And if there had been any movement in that case since, since it had occurred in 1984. Well, one
1: out of the four attacks, two of the attacks, people survived. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, actually in three of the attacks, somebody survived, but the the Bennett family cases, you know, it's, it's pretty much the whole family,
0: yeah. And in all of those attacks, we don't really have anybody that's able to describe the attacker, you know. So if if we would have had a surviving member of the family in each case go describe the attacker to us, we could determine just based off of that if they were in fact connected or potentially connected.
1: Yes, and I think I'm going to assume, and we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but I'm going to assume that they had some um details about the attacker but not enough where that they could you know make a sketch or anything
0: the only details that i could find and i do i'll give them to you now but we'll circle back to it later um was from the first attack from that hobbins child attack there there is a rumor floating around and i want to be clear that i feel that it could be a rumor there's information out there to suggest that kimberly may have seen the attacker inside their home before she was hit, before mm-hmm. she was struck over the head. And in this situation, she describes an African-American male who was in her words. Well, I, I can't say for certain that these are her words. That's why I want to be clear that this might be a rumor was that she had stated that the man was well over six foot. And, mm-hmm. and, and in, in these same reports, I've also seen the word enormous, Used to describe no. this t- potential attacker, but what yeah,
1: we so yeah, I heard he was a tall piece of shit or enormous piece of shit.
0: What we would later learn, like I said, nearly twenty years later, this was in two thousand and two that they announced. Remember, there was DNA collected at several of the crime scenes. Mm-hmm. The DNA of the person who murdered the Bennetts was found at the Bennett family home, as well as the person that murdered Patricia Smith in her home. Yeah. They announced in 2002 that the DNA um, from both of these crime scenes matched the DNA collected at the other crime scene.
1: Right. So those those two are at least connected.
0: Correct. Um, We can say science with scientific proof that those two cases are connected. And those, in fact, involve all of the actual murders that only leaves the other two cases where people were attacked, left for dead, but in fact, recovered later at the hospital. Now, in those situations, we have... There was a bloody boot print that was found in the Bennett's garage, okay? So it was O.J.? Yeah, it was O.J. Simpson. <laughs> um, they What they did was they actually cut this, this boot print out and saved it and preserved it for many, many years, probably to still to this day. Like Bigfoot. The thing here is there was a similar, if not identical bootprint that was left in the garage of Donna Dixon
1: mm-hmm. so that would connect that one as well
0: yeah there. I found two reports of this so obviously this is not something that has been widely reported but mm-hmm. it appears that we have scientific evidence that that all the murders are in fact connected and it's very likely that whoever attacked Donna Dixon in her garage was the same person uh, that killed the Bennett family
1: is there any information about the first attack as far as Missing items. No, there's a, there's a <laughs> like, cause some of the other cases it will say, you know, she had diamond rings or diamond earrings or something. And those were taken, but it seems like with the first one, there is no report of items missing.
0: Okay. So yeah, not only is there no report of items missing, but we also have some other lack of evidence or lack of information regarding the Hobbins child attack. We don't, other than it being stated that no forced entry was used to get into the home, we don't know how, you know, we don't know how they either determine that or B, the way that this person gained entry. Mm -hmm. What we do know is that the two victims were sleeping in their bedrooms, Mm -hmm. so they didn't answer the door. We can gather that much. As you stated, we don't know if there was anything taken from the home. We don't know if Kimberly was sexually assaulted like some of the other females were in other attacks.
1: Right. Doesn't mean she wasn't. It just wasn't reported.
0: Correct. Um, And we don't know how much of a if there was any struggle at all before the actual attacks occurred. So what we heard in the first trailer there where I'm describing the actual attack a bit of that is dramatized, mm-hmm. okay, because there is no information. The information that's received that, that I have found would suggest that they were in their bedroom sleeping when the attack occurred. This makes me question if Kimberly, in fact, even would have seen the attacker at all. Right. It makes me question that was she struck before she could have had the opportunity to see him Or was the room dark enough that she couldn't make anything out regarding this person Mm -hmm. before she was struck over the head? You're talking about she was either struck over the head before she had the opportunity to open her eyes or immediately after doing so. And suffering such a terrible head injury also would make you question, or me anyway, question the validity of what she thinks she may have saw.
1: Yeah, you're not calling her a liar. You're just saying, you, again, who knows? I mean, the, the attacker could be wearing a mask. The, ta- the attacker could be wearing face paint. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're breaking into a house at night, is it really that absurd to think that maybe the person would be wearing face paint? You wake up, or a right, ski mask, ski right, ski mask. You you wake up. You're in the dark. Your eyes are adjusting. Maybe she believes she saw African American male. But like you said, I'm with you. How much can you trust what she, what information she's putting out there? I'd say probably none of it.
0: We know that this was the, um, the middle of the night. We know that this attack occurred in January of Colorado. I can't state what the exact temperature was that night, but I can tell you that I wouldn't put it out of question that the person was wearing something to cover their face, not only for as a disguise, mm-hmm. but to, to protect themselves from the elements. Um, you know, it being January in Colorado mm-hmm. anyway. So the other thing though here, captain is I came across two detective interviews uh, that occurred over the years. Both of them have stated several times during these interviews that they believe that the Bennett family murders were connected to two other cases. Uh, one that we say said was proven by DNA mm-hmm. and the second one, they wouldn't say it directly. Uh, The Dixon, the Donna Dixon attack, but I'm I'm assuming that's what they mean that they they are pretty convinced that the three of them are connected. The problem, as we're pointing out, is the Hobbins child attack has so little information.
1: Right. But their evidence is the DNA connection and the boot print.
0: Yes. Mm hmm. Okay, so this is this is pretty interesting here, Captain. Armed with the DNA evidence that they announced in 2002. Mm-hmm. Now, let's go to June of 2002. The then-district attorney, Jim Peters, he obtained a John Doe arrest warrant. Charging John Doe—this would be the person uh, whose DNA was left at those two crime scenes— with 18 counts, including four first-degree murder charges and a bunch of sexual assault charges. Why is this important? Um, because this is interesting because they have this person's DNA. They don't know who he is. Mm-hmm. But when there there is an opportunity that at some point this guy could commit another crime, could get picked up for some reason where they would be required to take his DNA and enter that information into certain databases and it would link the two. Now, the problem here is if he were arrested in Aurora or Lakewood, it's very likely that they, um, you know, they would, they would keep him immediately. Mm -hmm. The thing here is, let's say this guy committed a crime in Maine or in Florida or in Washington, and he's picked up somewhere and they collect his DNA and it hits in one of these databases. Mm -hmm. Well, now the, the local authorities of wherever this man is arrested can go, you know what? We know we only picked you up on a DUI and we would typically release you for this, but we can't release you because there's an arrest warrant for you in the state of Colorado. Right. So he would be held until he could be extradited and charged with these and brought to trial.
1: But there was another thing learned by this, right? Right.
0: Yeah, by the release of these of the DNA being connected between the two cases. The other reason why this is so valuable, and one thing that they told us when they released this information, was that the police actually spent a lot of time when investigating the murders of the Bennett family members. Mm-hmm. They spent a ton of time looking at actually actual family members of the Bennett's of having committed this murder, right. the triple murder. Because it was so heinous. Well, not only that, but it I think it's more for this point that earlier that night, that same night that they were attacked, just hours before, they had that birthday party. Right. Where they had a bunch of people that they knew and a bunch of family members to their home. Mm-hmm. And I think that the police were working on a theory that maybe either someone had returned to the home, like some like I could go back to the home hours later and go, "Hey, I forgot" I forgot my hat or I forgot my coat and gain entry into the home that way.
1: Yeah. Or you could be like, I forgot my wig.
0: The other thing though, too, is the thought that maybe somebody had concealed themselves somewhere in the home waiting for the family to go to sleep and then decided to attack them in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. Um, The DNA evidence was used to test against people that they were looking into, whether it be Bennett family members or people that knew the Bennett's. Maybe it's people that worked at the family uh, furniture store. Mm -hmm. They were able to use this DNA to clear those people.
1: And with this information, we could definitively say that three of the four attacks are connected. Then the question becomes, how did this intruder get into the house? If there's never a sign of force entry.
0: Okay, so I was able to track down a couple of different news articles that took place that that were written well after the crimes took took place. This is from 1994 from the Rocky Mountain News. And I'm not going to read the entire article, but there are some uh, things that I think that we should highlight here. Mm -hmm. And in this article, the person that is being interviewed is. Constance Bennett. Now in this article, she's going by Connie. I'm assuming that that's what her friends and family actually called her, but she's re- she's recounting what took place 10 years ago mm-hmm. from this interview. And she's stating that the next morning when the couple had failed to show up at work, she remembers thinking that she better go check on them because of something like carbon monoxide poisoning or a carbon monoxide leak in the house. Yeah. She stated that when she arrived at the home, she walked up the sidewalk. She saw Deborah's purse lying on the front lawn with its contents spilled out. Once inside the home, she found Bruce inside the bloody spattered house on a stairway leading from the main floor to a lower level. He was bludgeoned and his throat was cut. This is a direct quote from Constance or Connie stating, I called 911. I couldn't remember the address, she said. I had to run outside to get it. I was hysterical, I guess. And We'll get back into a bit of that in a little bit. But the other thing that she states here is she says after she called 911, the important information here is that she says 10 years after the attack. I believe whoever committed this crime crept through the unlocked garage door in the quiet darkness. Maybe on a mission to kill could have been looking for money, maybe high on drugs. Mm. And she states that she doesn't think that it was anyone who knew the Bennett's. Now I took this information. Then I, I, I looked at this other article that was found from the Denver post in September of 2003. And this article is different. This one is written by a neighbor who is kind of he, he doesn't talk so much about the crime itself. Yeah. Uh, but he's kind of talking about the neighborhood and about his family and what, what having lived next door or lived across the street from this triple homicide and how it has affected them and their neighborhood. And he's stating, you know, that ever since that day, this this guy and his family are dog people. They always own dogs. Uh, before the good attacks. People, good people. Because he people said that they they own Irish setters. Mm-hmm. They had always had Irish setters before. But now after the Bennett family was killed. That they own Dobermans. That they got a more aggressive uh, dog. Because of this attack. Now the thing here is though. That he states. He had been watching a es cold crime files one night. Before writing this article. And he stated that he he thought that the almost forgotten Bennett case was a perfect, uh, would be perfect for this TV show Annie's cold crime files. So he was kind of thinking back and reflecting on what he remembers of the crime mm-hmm. in that night. And he says, the memory of that night was burnt in my mind. The garage door was open all night. He died of a slit throat. His wife and daughter were bludgeoned to death. Little Vanessa survived. So in the case of the Bennett family we have the mother speculating that the killer entered through the unlocked door from the garage Mm -hmm. nowhere in that article does she state that the garage door was open when she arrived at the scene however we have a neighbor saying stating that that memories burnt in my mind the garage door was open all night so what i think we can gather from that is that it's very likely that the Bennett's accidentally left their garage door open. Most people don't lock the man door that goes from your whatever room into your garage. That's sexist. And it's, it's likely that the killer walked in through the garage through that unlocked door Mm -hmm. and started walking into the home, caused some noise. He woke up the family and Bruce comes down the steps and they, they, they fight. Now, the reason why I read that other thing about Constance saying that she called 911 but couldn't remember the the address, remember, they had only moved into that home about three months before they were attacked and killed. So it's, you know, not unheard of that the mother wouldn't remember the address. They had only lived there a short time. But the reason why I read that bit was one thing that I had always wondered about this case, Captain, was if this fight would have taken some time between Bruce and the attacker. And the intruder. I had always wondered why Deborah, his wife, hadn't called 911. And, and I had always speculated that possibly the killer, before entering the home, had cut the phone line outside. We now know that that wasn't the case. He never cut the phone line because that's the same phone line that Constance later used to call 911 to report her son and his family having been attacked. Right. Okay, so how did the killer gain entry into these different homes? I think here, we can't say with definitive proof that he entered through the garage door. But then I started looking at the Patricia Smith case. Mm -hmm. Remember, she lived in a townhome. And I guess when I pictured this in my mind, I was picturing, you know, like a condo. But what I started doing was I got on Google and I Googled her address. And I couldn't find that. Creepy. Creepy. It would only show me like the bank of townhomes, let's -hmm. say Um, you, you have the main street there and then you would turn in and you have multiple townhomes. Mm -hmm. They all share the same numbered address, but they are distinct by a letter. So I couldn't confirm which one was actually hers, the home that she was killed in. What I could confirm was looking at that bank of townhomes, they all had garages I just assumed her home never had a garage because her daughter describes pulling up and seeing her mother's car outside parked outside. Right. That doesn't mean that she didn't park her car outside, open the garage door and then go in through the door, leaving that, that door unlocked. Right. And again, she could have heard her attacker come into the home She goes downstairs to investigate, or she's still upstairs by the time he gets upstairs to attack her. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy,
1: I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp h e l p.com/garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out betterhelp.com/garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage
0: today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess Meals. to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All
1: right. Cheers, mates.
0: Cheers. A little more information here, Captain, before we get back to our questions that we want to answer for this. The Aurora Cold Case Squad, there is a detective there, Steve Connor. Uh, he asked the Parabon Nano Labs Company, this is a company based in Virginia, to use its newly developed technology to create an image of the perpetrator based on DNA predictions to determine the suspect's ancestry, eye color, hair color, freckling, and face shape. Now, remember, some of you will remember we've discussed this on cases before. This is newer technology, and they had DNA from two of the crime scenes. This is that snapshot DNA imaging, uh, and we, we've discussed this on several other cases. One that comes to mind is the April Tinsley case. There are some things to discuss here, Captain. The images generated as requested by the detective show the what the perpetrator may look like. Key word here uh, we need to use is may look like. Um, But it shows what the perpetrator may have looked like at the ages of 25 and 55 years old. Now, keep in mind, we don't obviously we don't know the age of the offender. These are just two ages picked by the detective at his request.
1: Yeah, there's a part of me that likes that they do this. But the more information I find about this, because basically what it's doing is it's coming up with a composite sketch based off a DNA but this DNA doesn't tell you certain it only tells you it's so vague so it's almost to me where it's like do the DNA test do uh, a description but I don't necessarily think they should do an actual drawing
0: well you're right there Captain I I, I actually think they should do the drawing but the reason why I say that you're right is that as much as this could help your investigation locating this perpetrator, it could hurt you in a sense that there's a chance that the actual offender today may not resemble either of these pictures given. And, and meaning it could hurt you in the fact that where you and I on the street might look at a guy and say, you know what? I know he lived in the Aurora area back in 84 and he suddenly moved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and he's been here for 30 years but he doesn't look anything like the guy. Well, why would he not look anything like the guy? Is because you you have some pretty generalities here of based off of what the person would look like. Let's say the the older image showing mm-hmm. him at age 55. Well, this is showing this to me, it only shows the face, you know, from the neck up. And this appears to be somebody that would be of average weight. Well, one thing that would would change his general facial appearance simply would be if he was thinner than this or more heavy set than this. Yeah. Also, you can't factor in how hard of a life has this person lived? Is this somebody that's been drinking constantly for the past 30 years and may may have wrinkles and, and <laughs> not look anything like this or, or a smoker or somebody that's tan yeah. or, or you know. what
1: if he was using his apartment for a place for smokers to go to? Yes. Yes. We've seen the effects that that has had
0: on Cosmo Kramer.
1: Hideous, Jerry. Hideous. Look away.
0: So the the, uh, cold case detective, he states that one thing he wants us to focus on is not so much the image that has been created, but that we should focus more on the physical description that is given because of this information. And stating that we are, you know, we're looking at a Caucasian person. This is somebody that would be believed to have the ancestry of northern and or central European ancestry. They have fair to very fair skin color. Mm -hmm. Eye color would be green or blue eyes. Hair color would be brown or blonde hair and would have a few would have few to some freckles. Um, so obviously we can't figure out how tall the person is, how much they may weigh, what kind of lifestyle choices that they've made since then that could change their appearance in some different ways. Talking about Colorado and talking about this, uh, snapshot DNA, I did see one where the, where Colorado used this technology Mm -hmm. to create an image of somebody. And this was a, um, a person that I believe he was guilty of a couple of rapes and had moved away and somebody saw the image of this person and sure enough made the right phone call. And this guy was picked up and they were able to determine that it was in fact him. The, the funny thing here, well, not the funny thing, but the thing here, captain is the guy. He did look almost exactly like the image,
1: which okay, was so may, maybe I should take back my,
0: no, I don't think so. I think I think it's right to have a little bit of concern. I, I we've seen it we've seen it used in several cases. I've only seen one case where it's actually led to the apprehension of the actual inv- individual.
1: And this is why I said that I think they had some evidence that this murderer was Caucasian okay. because you know one of the things that Steve Connor said was this gave us proof that they were Caucasian.
0: Oh, that they had some thought that this was a Caucasian male. And then this DNA evidence proved right. that thought.
1: And I, I kind of wondered, maybe it could have just been a speculation, obviously. But he, he said that now we have definitive evidence. And so, again, that makes me feel like he they knew something before him.
0: Where it makes you wonder, had somebody seen something? Was there some kind of eyewitness that saw somebody fleeing the scene? Mm-hmm. Or did somebody see possibly, maybe another motorist happened to see somebody driving or tailing Donna Dixon in a car behind her? And it was a, all I can tell you was it was a white guy.
1: Or one of the people that survived, you know, later said, Hey, I believe it was a, a white guy.
0: Possibly. No. The, the the interesting thing here is we can only we can only speculate as far as with the survivors go. So we according to the information we have that was reported in the papers and the media, the three year old that survived, she has no recollection of the attack. Now, is that simply that police said, you know what, we're going to state that in the media so that this this guy doesn't come out of the woodwork and come looking for the lone survivor of the Bennett family attack. Right. Uh, you know, she's a minor. We also have Donna Dixon could be the same thing. They could be protecting her. I have heard one of the detectives say in an interview that Donna Dixon has no recollection of the attack. As far as Donna Dixon knows, she got out of her car and next thing she knows she woke up a week later in a hospital bed and and has no clue what happened. You bring up an interesting thing here, though, because we said earlier that there was some loosey-goosey information out there that possibly Kimberly Hobbinschild had stated that the attacker that attacked her and her husband, James, in their bedroom that night in January 84 was a large African-American man. Mm-hmm. And with this DNA evidence, what that would point out to us is is one of two things, either, either A... Uh, this is not connected. These three other attacks are not connected to the first attack. Right. Or B, for whatever reason, she thinks that she saw a black man and it wasn't possible. It was actually this guy and it's all four of them are connected.
1: Well, and after what, 170 some episodes yeah. with you, uh, I'm starting to learn a couple things about what fascinates you about cases. And you're a sucker for letters.
0: Yeah, well, uh, yes, I am. If I'm, I'm a sucker for when, love letters when a killer would communicate with the media or the police, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be letters or through phone calls. Um, and you, you're kind of in a roundabout way getting to what I know, you know, uh, we need to get to at this point is the bloody letters that were left at the Bennett crime scene. Yeah, and could this be? When we say letters, though, we mean, could this be the name of the killer that was left on the body of one of the victims? This wasn't released to the public until 2015. The way that this works is this. So when the when the killer lifted Melissa's body, this is the seven, the seven year old, when he lifted Melissa's bloody body from her bed, there were letters embroidered on this person's shirt that transferred that were transferred in blood. To the little girl's pajamas. Mm -hmm. So investigators have always believed that the letters could identify the killer's name or possibly the business where he worked or had worked at one time. This was something regarding the release of this information. This was something that police and detectives, they debated for many, many years on whether or not they should release this information to the public. Yeah. Because... Okay, so the the arguments for both sides would be one, the killer is probably very likely unaware that he left this evidence at the crime scene. And this could be deadly information when you find this person and you have him in the interrogation room. Is he once you finally present this information to him, how's he going to be able to explain it away? Right. Um so that could help to make an arrest. Then on the other, you have where if he knows about this information going into the questioning, he may come up with a plausible excuse or just be set off ready to deny it emphatically from the get go. Right.
1: Because he knows the information's out there. So regarding this, this was something that the police actually worked on. Right. But the other side of the coin was that if you don't release it, that you have such such a time gap that, you know, if he worked for a business that is now closed. Mm Mm-hmm. Or closed way back in let's say 85 then like if you would have released this information in 85 or 84 that more people would be aware of this business
0: right and you have 30 years that have gone by by the time they finally do release the information this information may be no good to to maybe it was only good to somebody that's not around anymore right uh that, that could have provided you the proper tip the police, they did work this information for quite some time before releasing it to the public. They actually sent it to two different labs to try to decipher what the letters were Mm -hmm. or what they actually said. Uh, they sent it to a Canadian lab who came up with the letters P E T A W dash C as in cat. So P E T A W dash C. Now the strange thing here though captain is they sent it to like we said two labs. The other was an Arizona lab which came up with something completely different. They came up with R I C H A R. So the second A C A I C H A R could be like the name Richard or Richards or Richardson. So why why would they come up with two completely different things well Okay, you got to you got to keep in mind a, a couple of factors here. First of all, the obvious that would be something you and I and other garage listeners could probably figure out is depending on how the killer picked up this girl, how he was holding her when the when they transferred the letters transferred in blood mm-hmm. could mean several things. Either the letters would be upside down, they would be backwards, simple things like that that you and I and others could fairly you know easily figure out right the other issue though too is think about how this is not like you're taking a like you're taking a stamp you know something you dip in ink and then and then stamping it onto a piece of paper and it dries Mm -hmm. immediately and it stays there no this is something that blood-soaked clothing the victim is wearing potentially blood-soaked clothing that the killer is wearing as well there could have been and there's hours before the bodies are discovered So you're talking about swelling of these letters. Uh, You're also talking about distortion of these letters. And from the reports that I have been able to find that talk about the details of this actual um, layout of these letters would describe that the way that her pajamas were at the time that they believe that those letters transferred to her clothing Mm -hmm. was that there would have been folds on those pajamas
1: or right. Not, and not only just folds, but you're going to have also a situation where he might've picked up the victim, press his body against her, released her a little bit, press his body against her again. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm.
0: Or moved. So, or moved her, you know, friction.
1: Right. So the, so the first time you, if you press your body against, and then when you release, if then her pajamas fold in a different manner, this is why there could be such confusion.
0: Right. Right. So again those the two that the labs came up with, one is PETAW-C and the other is RICHAR. Um very interesting stuff here. I it doesn't really lead me to anything. I but but then again, I'm also not aware of companies back then. Um you know, companies in the area back then in 83, 84. Mm-hmm. I do like the the chance of a possible name of Richard or Richards or Richardson, um, something to that effect. But back to our questions, captain, you know, we talked about the DNA. We connecting some of these cases. We've talked about the, how would the killer gain entry to the homes with no signs of forced entry? Personal belief of mine is that the killer came in through the garage door. Mm -hmm. I know that when you and I, you know, you and I are roughly the same age and I know in my neighborhood growing up when I was a kid, oftentimes you could tell if your friend and his family were home during the daytime by simply looking out your door or going down the street on your bike and seeing if their garage door was open. Yeah. And, you know, when I was growing up, that, and I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s, you know. Uh,
1: I mean, late
0: 60s. <laughs> and... So I I wouldn't be surprised if it was a similar situation in this neighborhood in Colorado in these neighborhoods in Colorado. Um and you could simply have a situation where the Bennetts having a busy house full of people for the birthday party forgot or failed to close the garage door for whatever reason before going to bed.
1: Right. Well, and you, you, it's a good possibility. That, oh we're having this little birthday party for our daughter and we're having some friends and family over and we're drinking a little bit mm-hmm. you know and then it you get your kids to bed and and maybe the the husband uh, you know passed out on the couch or whatever you
0: know personally I believe and it's just my speculation but I believe that would be the case with the Hobbins child case as well where the killer slipped in through the garage into the locked door and then crept up into their bedroom in the middle of the night Yeah. Now, the next question we have to address, Captain, would be, did the killer know his victims? And if not, why did he choose these particular people or houses?
1: And I guess you can throw in with that question, what is his motive?
0: Yeah, I think you could. Um, For me, anyway, I mean, my answer is is pretty much this. I don't think that this guy knew his victims at all. I think that these were probably crimes of opportunity. Mm Mm-hmm. I think this guy was hell-bent on rape and murder. So when we talk about mur- motive, let's first jump to motive. I think this guy was, was hell-bent on rape and murder. I, truly, I think that's what I see here. Right. I don't think he snuck into the Bennett home for any other reason. He wasn't there to steal anything. He was there to attack whoever was in that home. I don't think he knew who was there.
1: Right, and you're saying it's a crime of opportunity because if their garage door was open, then yeah. it it could be as simple as this guy's trolling neighborhoods. All oh, that garage door's open, yeah. Let, let go, me go in there. He
0: goes out at two, three in the morning, under the cover of of darkness, finds a, a home that happened to leave their garage door open. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing: I would, you know. Maybe, you know, that theory could be proved wrong, whether these garage doors were left open or not. I think there's evidence to point that they were, in fact, open. Therefore, to me, for 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 a victim that he wanted to target to happen to leave their garage door open, the probability of that is crazy. You can't even start to think about those numbers. So this, to me, is a crime of opportunity. How does this carry over to Patricia Smith and to Donna Dixon? I think he saw those two driving. We know they were both returning to their home shortly before both attacks occurred.
1: Yeah, so he'd be out trolling, you know, for maybe possible situations later in the day and he just sees these females. Yeah,
0: and I mean they're they're attractive ladies that are driving they're returning to their home, both brunettes. I don't know if he had a type or not. It's tough to say that he had a type mm-hmm. when we're when I'm also saying that he he just picked houses because they happened to leave garage doors open.
1: Mm-hmm. um well but with two of the victims mm-hmm. he saw them driving
0: yeah and i i think that that it's just that simple i think this guy i mean you're talking about if it was in fact the same guy we know three of the attacks were but let's lump in the fourth one well
1: right but what i'm arguing is that you could kind of say that maybe he does have a type because he saw these two you know these two females driving and he didn't I mean, he probably saw multiple females driving. Oh, I get what you're saying. he chose these two. He
0: chose to follow
1: those two. Yeah, and they they look similar. I mean, one's a little older, but, you know, they do look similar.
0: And the reason why I pick the motive is, and I know it seems like I'm kind of not giving a great answer here for motive, but I don't think it's crazy to suggest that this guy was just hell-bent on murder and rape. You're talking about four attacks in the course of 13 days.
1: Uh-huh.
0: That is somebody that is has already spiral spiraled out of control. This is somebody that is, is attacking at a frequency that is unheard of.
1: Well, and this kind of answers the next question, you know, Mm -hmm. why were some attacks, you know, during the day and some at night. And really like you were saying, it could just be opportunity.
0: Yeah, we can't really, whenever the uh, opportunity arises for him, where, whenever he doesn't have to be accountable for his time or whereabouts, Right. and he sees a potential victim, whether it be women that he's followed in cars or homes that appear easy to get into, uh-huh. he strikes. And that makes him an extremely dangerous and scary
1: individual. Individual.
0: Yeah. We're talking about nice communities, too. And whether it be a nice community, poor community, bad community, whatever, These mm. are these are vicious, horrible crimes.
1: Yeah. So then, I guess the final question is, Then why did they stop? I mean, obviously this person is a a monster, a monster like this just doesn't just stop
0: because they, they seemingly have stopped. And when we say that, you know, the thing here is they, they have stopped in that area and we can say that for certain. The other thing is they have his DNA and they have his DNA on file. If Somebody crept into somebody's home in the middle of the night and murdered a family and left his DNA there, whether it be 15, 20 years later on the other side of the country, we're going to know that this killer didn't stop. Yeah, but
1: they might've escalated.
0: You have a lot of factors to throw in there. I think,
1: well, I think the first factor you throw in is that the last quote unquote hammer slayer attack Mm -hmm. that, you know, again, Bruce put up one hell of a fight Mm -hmm. and maybe he, Maybe this murderer said, you know what? That's too risky. I can't take that chance anymore. This, this hammer thing doesn't make any sense anymore Mm -hmm. because if I, if I'm faced with somebody like Bruce again, I might not come out Victor. Right. And so they could change, um, you know, the way in which they, uh, the weapon they use in the, in the murders. Mm
0: -hmm. They could change the weapon that they use or stop altogether. Uh, the, yeah. the, the intruder also may have occurred an injury during that because uh. you and you're right to point out the Bennett. And I don't think that there, I don't think that that's, um, I think that, that there's plenty of proof there that there's good reason why that potentially may have been the last attack or certainly the last known attack, because the major thing that's different between that attack and the previous three attacks is he actually has to fight with somebody. Yeah, we got We got to put in some other factors here. So it's 1984, right? It's Mm -hmm. we don't know much about DNA at the time. Yeah, they collected it at two of the crime scenes. He may have left it, most likely left it as a result of the rapes that occurred at those two crime scenes. The thing here is, though, that I keep kind of going back to is this guy, whoever was doing this. These are extremely risky crimes that this guy is committing these are extremely risky attacks and murders that he's committing we have two where he enters a home in the middle of the night and presumably doesn't know what's on this other side of that door yeah he doesn't know how many people were in the home doesn't know if there's dogs in the home to our knowledge i would consider that extremely risky event the other thing is the other two crimes happened during the daytime. One where, one where he attacks a woman in her garage. Yeah, she may have arrived at home by herself, but she, you don't know if there's somebody inside that home. Right. Same with Patricia Smith who came home. She happened to come home by herself, and there happened to be nobody inside the home. I think what, what may have occurred here, and this is pure speculation on my part, but I think that Bruce, God bless him, I think he injured this guy in some manner during the, the fight that took place in the Bennett household. Yeah. I think this guy might've been injured and chose to move elsewhere or attack elsewhere because of this injury. I think that it, the, the injury could have been a giveaway. I think this guy was actually either apprehended or killed at another, at another attempted murder scene. Later. Yeah.
1: Because chances are he's breaking into places. So he could have broken into a place Had the cops called, he went to jail for burglary or breaking and entering. They didn't know he was a murderer. But also, during this time period, they didn't collect DNA. So if you're arrested now, they're going to collect DNA, put you on file. Mm -hmm. But this is before this mandate. So he would have to have been arrested before that mandate. Mm -hmm. Now, did he get out and just kind of stop? Who knows? I would say that somebody like this, this kind of monster, is probably not going to stop. The other question here too is, you know, it seems like his motivation was, you know, sexual in nature. So was there an opportunity? The garage door is open. He goes in, struggles, has this fight, and then there's kids involved. And is that just enough for this monster to come back after the attack? Know that his time is running out, and maybe with these kids involved, decides to take his own life. That's a possibility, yeah, as well.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think suicide, maybe, like I said, I believe it's a person that's already spiraled out of control before some of these attacks occurred, right? Yeah, suicide could be very likely. Um, again, I think that if he didn't kill himself, that you're looking at a situation where. The frequency of these attacks I wouldn't expect him to stop. I would expect him to continue to attack and probably fairly soon. Maybe because escalate more. Well, maybe because of the injury that I believe may have occurred at the Bennett House that he took some time off, let's say, to Mm -hmm. recover. I think that for somebody a little psychological thing here that I would throw in is somebody willing to enter a home and that does not know what's going on in that home or who is in that home or what weapons that the members of that family may have. This might be somebody that's very confident in their physical ability. And when they sustain an injury, they may be limited in the sense where they for a temper temporarily are not confident in their physical ability. They take a, take some time off and then attempt another one of these high risk crimes by entering someone's home or attacking someone in broad daylight in another location. And the police didn't just, they just didn't connect the the two. And maybe he went off and spent some time in prison and maybe it was a lengthy prison sentence. Mm -hmm. By the time he gets out, he's no longer confident in his physical ability because he's older or maybe some injuries occurred while in prison, or maybe he passed away during that prison sentence. Yeah. All kinds of factors here.
1: I think the only thing that we have to go off of is a couple things. One, the letters, the bloody letters. So I would say anybody that's listening to this case that is from that area, from Lakewood or Aurora
0: or Denver, maybe this guy worked in Denver and traveled to these areas to attack.
1: But think about this: you know, round eighty-four, did a family member of yours commit suicide? Did a family member of yours? Go away for a time period, maybe passed away in jail, or maybe one was sick and passed away. Mm-hmm. But maybe this family member or a friend of a friend was a little kind of shady. Do these letters, do you want to go over those letters again real quick?
0: Do, yeah. Do they mean anything to anybody out there listening? And the, right. fir- the first guess was P E T A W C. C. And the next set of letters was R-I-C-H-A-R. And anyone with information should contact the Aurora Police Detectives at 303-739-6106 or the Lakewood Police Cold Case Hotline at 303-987-7474. all right captain we want to thank everybody for listening
1: thanks for filling up the fridge thanks for all those little donations you know it helps keep the heat on in the garage and it's freaking cold my friends mm-hmm.
0: so everybody you stay warm out there until next time be good be kind and don't let